In this episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Crystal Barini, a partner at PJT Partners Cambreview. PJT Cambreview brings together the world's leading experts from the investor community to help public companies engage with their own investors in complex shareholder matters. Today, we will delve into the increasing engagement between investors and companies on ESG issues and on how companies can effectively communicate their ESG priorities to their investors. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Crystal. Thank you very much, Amelia. Happy to be here. This beat is going to focus on how companies and issuers engage with shareholders on ESG topics. We've heard from investors in this course, and today I'd like to introduce how experts are advising their clients to engage with investors on ESG. Um, Before getting to your specific role at PJT Cambreview Partners, I'd like to ask, what does PJT do at a high level? Yeah, yeah, of course. So PJT is a leading independent um, advisor and our business is made up of a few different segments. So we have strategic advisory, which you can think of as traditional uh, traditional investment banking. We have restructuring, um, which does all of our restructuring work. We have Park Hill, um, which is a placements business, works with Um, a lot of investors and private equity around uh, investment placements. And then you have our team, PJT Camberview, which is the shareholder advisory arm of of PJT. And what that means and and what that means for us and and how we work day to day is we are an investor-led shareholder advisory team that works with public and private companies around the globe on engaging with their shareholders through what could be very complex um, shareholder matters or votes, activism, preparedness, defense, sustainability issues, all of the things that would be captured under um, what a company might want to engage with their investors on. So now let's zero in on your work in the shareholder advisory practice area. What are the different components of that work? So we have three primary components of it with a few focus areas within each of them. So our advisory services, you can think of that as proactive advisory work um, that we do with companies. It could be around um, corporate governance, it could be around activism preparedness, you know, generally speaking, not not a threat. Um, It could be around sustainability, you know, taking a look at sustainability or ENS um, governance, what companies are currently doing. The the second area that we do um, are campaigns, which are typically event-driven engagements that we have. It could be around an annual meeting. So if a company is facing a a challenging vote, a challenging set of circumstances in the lead up to their annual meeting, we'll engage with them in navigating that. It could also be um, something related to an event such as a a crisis or something in the media that would lead to an event-driven type of engagement that they wanna have with their investors. Um, And then the, the third bucket, is our contested work. And so you can think about that as um, uh, activism, activism defense. I think, you know, if there are companies that are particularly vulnerable, work that we're doing to help shore up some of those vulnerabilities, build relationships with their investors, take a look 
um, at their strategic operational capital um, capital vulnerabilities that they might want to wrap their arms around. So those are the three main buckets. And I would say within each of those, um, we have a, a global client base. It crosses all industries. It crosses all size. So our, our client base is um, quite diverse, I would say. So moving on to get a bit more granular uh, with respect to the overlap of ENS issues in each of your different work streams, let's call them. Um, let's start with advisory services. Uh, what are some examples of advisory services um, issues that relate to oversight of ENS risks? Yeah, so as, as I said, the, our advisory services are some of our proactive um, the proactive engagements we have. So we're working with companies in, you know, quote unquote, peacetime, right? Um, looking at the looking at the structures they have in place, looking at their policies. And so a lot of our ENS work falls within uh, falls within that bucket. Because one of the things that we do with companies who are part of our traditional um, advisory services, we tend to be on a year-long engagement. And one of the major things we're working with companies doing to do is to build out um, to build out their relationships with their shareholders. Have they set up an engagement program that includes off-season engagement? How is it are they engaging? Do you understand your top investors' priorities? And so you can imagine in a world in which you're building out an engagement program, wanting to make sure that companies understand their investor base, their priorities, how they think, how they want to engage. Um, ENS issues are, are very much on, on the agenda for all of that. And so the way we work with companies around ENS in particular comes up as part of the work that we do to put together an engagement strategy. So who are those investors that you're going to go out to? What are their top priorities? What are the questions that they're going to ask you? Because many of them, you know, if, if, if you're following, you know, the what a lot of the large, particularly U.S. investors saying their top priorities for any given year, at least a couple of them are, are ENS. So making sure that a company is prepared to have a conversation about what they are doing on the issues that we know their investors are going to care the most about. So that, that's one way. Another way um, that we work with them in, in this more proactive it, it, it advisory engagement is taking a look at their current practices, taking a look at their current disclosure and say, we know, we know what you're doing. We know what you have out there publicly. And there's a delta. You know, there, there's a delta in that you're doing these things. You actually don't disclose them very well. It's not being, it's not being picked up. These are things that investors care about. Here are some things that you might want to consider. You know, as part of that, there's also some working that we can do across, um, a, a, across their peer set and say, you know, based on, you know, you know, diversity and inclusion, what you put out there in terms of metrics that you've set, goals that you've set, policies you've put in place, you're actually a bit of an outlier. Maybe you have these practices, but the way you disclose them is a little bit of an outlier. This is important. Um, you know, here's something to consider. So those are a few of the ways that um, we work with companies in that more proactive, um, proactive engagement throughout the year. It's kind of a year-long process. So that's fascinating because if the companies are working with you on phase one, which is 
the proactive advisory services phase, they shouldn't get to phase two and they certainly shouldn't get to phase three unless of course it's a black swan risk. Um, so it, it's the engagement process is really fascinating uh, to me um, from a theoretical and academic perspective. And I've observed how much that's changed. And you know, you said engagement with investors off calendar. Um, is the expectation that companies and investors are really engaging year round now? What do you think is driving that? And how do you advise your clients to deal with that volume of engagement? Yeah. Um, the short answer is yes. This is absolutely a, a year long um, process. And I would say that the companies that do it best um, have heavily weighted the engagement that they do outside of their annual meeting. And part of this has to do with, um, you know, as you, as you raise the volume of this, right? Um, during proxy season, about 70% of all U.S. all U.S. companies have their annual meeting within a span of about three months. So if you just think about the volume that the investors um, are dealing with in terms of making it through the number of meetings, you know, BlackRock is up in you know tens of thousands of meetings they vote a year. State Street and Vanguard are are, are very close to that, and so investors during the annual meeting time of the year, which tends, tends to be the spring for most, for most U.S. companies, um, they are really focused on all of the information that they need to make a good decision for that vote. They are processing through a, in a tremendous amount of information. The time they have to spend on each company at that, at that point in the year is very limited. So, so with, with the time constraints that they have, one of the reasons that, that you've really seen this shift to meaningful dialogue in what we call the off season, which tends to be the fall, um, outside of, of that three month crunch time in the spring, really, if you can call anything outside of that off season, but you tend to see it in the fall. Um, that's really where investors, when investors like to spend time with companies, they have more time to focus on. You can have a broader discussion. You can do some of the groundwork playing that's gonna be really important for how they're going to vote in the spring, right? Making sure that they have all the information to make a really good judgment in the spring because you have the time to give them context. You have the time to talk to them about their priorities. You're not gonna be, you're not gonna be solely focused on the vote at hand because if you have a challenging vote on your agenda, you know, you're going to have a conversation with State Street or BlackRock. In, in an inordinate amount of your time engaging with them is likely going to be on that one contentious issue on your ballot, right? Which means there's a whole host of things you haven't had a chance to have a conversation with. And this is why we believe that it's really important to have these off-season conversations because that's really when you get a chance to understand priorities and for your investors to really understand your business. You have this two-way dialogue that's not nearly as possible um, in season when you're focused on a vote. That's it's very that that's been a change that we've seen over the past call it about ten years or so, where really the engagement typically happened around the annual meeting uh, previously. So engagement is is so fascinating because it's also not transparent, right? So it happens behind closed doors. 
um, unlike the annual meeting or disclosure, of course. How does it work with respect to engagement? Do the investors call your clients? Is it a don't call me, we'll call you situation? <laughs> or do you advise your clients to proactively reach out to the investors? And then who at the company is engaging? Is it the general counsel? Is it IR? Is it the board chair? All great questions. <laughs> um, and I want to come back. I actually, let's have this. And I do want to come back to the transparency thing, because this is another thing we're seeing a little bit of change on. But um, in terms of how the engagement actually takes place, how it's, how it's initiated, um, part of what we put together um, in, in working with our clients is an engagement strategy for here's your investor base, here is how they like to engage. Um, for the most part, it's typically we are um, having companies reach out to their investors and ask for an engagement and say, these are the particular things we really like to share with you. We'd like to have a conversation with you around you know, some of the goal setting we're doing around some new diversity and inclusion measures, or we're just going through a strategic transformation. We wanna give you an update. We wanna give you some color around that. Um, there are other investors that from a sheer volume perspective tend to have, they're certainly willing to, um, take inbound requests, but the way they prioritize their engagement is very much based on um, their priorities for the year, right? You know, there are things, there are, are going to be, you know, five issues that they're going to be really focused on. And then what are the companies that meet those issues that they want to focus on? And so that's where you do have some investors reaching out to companies to say, you're, you know, you're on, you're on my focus list for this year. It doesn't always mean a bad thing, right? Um, they could have an industry focus. Would really love to talk with you. So it kind of goes both ways. And then in terms of the engagement team that a company would put together, a lot of it has to do with what the issue set is. And what we always say, what you want to start with is you want to, your investors want to have a conversation one with you, you know, not advisors. They don't want to talk to me <laughs> about it. Uh, they, they want to have a conversation with the company, their investors, right? They want to have a conversation with others. Um, and you want to have your subject matters experts on the phone, right? So think about the types of things you want to share. Think about the types of things that you think investors are going to ask you, the investors are going to ask you, and make sure you have representatives. It's probably someone from legal. It's probably someone from IR. If there's a comp element, it's probably someone from HR, the executive compensation team. And then on the question around um, director participation, and I'm sure you've, you know, you've seen the trends on this, you know, they go up and up into the right on both engagement and, and director participation, you know, director participation should be, it, it's, it's, um, it's a big ask for directors, right? It's, they already are doing all, you know, all of their board work. It's, it's incredibly important um, to have that engagement with investors, but at the right time, right? What are the, and, and again, we kind of start with what are the things that it's really important from an investor, for an investor to hear directly from the board, CEO succession, right? Any kind of major management changes. That's something that's really board driven. Investors are likely gonna wanna hear directly from the board. If there's something around executive compensation, Investors view the board, the comp committee as, you know, they are the body that's determining that. They would want to talk with the, with the, you know, the decision-making body around that. So it's very, in our mind, it's not necessarily default to say you should go bring a director every time. And I think many investors 
um, are saying, you know, we don't need to see a director every time. You're, you know, your director should focus on making sure that they are, you know, providing the right support to, to the company and all that. And if we have a reason to ask to talk with your, talk with one of the independent directors, we will ask. Um, and so that's why um, it's, we try to put a little bit more thought into how you, um, how you deliver uh, directors as part of the engagement. You, know, you want to make sure that they're there for the things that's really important for the messaging to come for them, but not, you know, not have to make this a huge, um, a huge lift on, on their part every year as well. So um, can we go back to the transparency? Piece? Yes, yes. I'm so excited about yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I totally agree. I think for a long time, you know, the conversations that have been happening between investors and companies as part of this engagement has been a little bit of a, a I don't want to say it's not a black box. It's not, it's not like they're running some model, but um, it has not been very transparent. They have these conversations. I think investors are saying, we had a good, we've had a good engagement with them. They are showing progress, but there was not really a whole lot to show for what was happening in those meetings. And I think this year, um, we are starting to see, particularly some of the bigger investors, put out a lot more reporting, I think, um, with a lot more transparency around the conversations that they're, um, that they're having. And I'll, and I'll pick on BlackRock a little bit, because they, they said, they, you know, this is one of the things that at the beginning of the year, Larry said that they were going to do, right? They wanted to be more transparent about the conversations that they're having, how they were influencing companies um, through their engagement. And in the, the first report that they, they put out this year, you saw that, you know, we saw that there were, um, there's a lot more detail about the types of conversations that we're having. And I think, I think this is going to be a trend that's going to continue. I think it's one that's been building um, for, for quite a bit because the underlying asset owners, I have to remember then on all of this, the institutional asset managers are representing the assets of the underlying asset owners and in the asset owner's interest in the issues that are being engaged on, in the issues that are being voted on, has only been increasing. And I think certainly on, on ENS issues too. And I think that that is driving some of this demand for greater reporting both to them and out publicly too, right? Um, to, know, to know what are the things that their asset manager cares about? What are the things that their asset manager is engaging on? How are they engaging for change? So, so thank you for that um, look into engagement. I can talk about engagement many, many hours. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to move on to the second bucket, um, shareholder vote campaigns. Can you describe for us the trends with respect to ENS proposals um, in shareholder vote campaigns? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think um, I'm going to start with actually last year. So last year was a fascinating year. If you look at some of the trends on, on the ENS proposals 20, 2019, um, the number of withdrawals of ENS proposals was at an all-time high. And I think there's a couple ways you could look at that, right? <laughs> you, could, you could look at it saying, gee, you know, what, what is happening here? Why are they not as effective? Why are they not reaching the ballot so that shareholders um, broadly, you know, a, a company shareholders can, can vote on them? What actually I think is, is driving the, the withdrawals, though, is there has we've seen a greater uptick in companies having conversations with these types of proponents and the things that they're asking for are things that 
one, a company may already be doing. Two, are things that a company might think they're, you know, it's good, it's, it's, it's positive, it's reporting or, or looking into um, uh, policies that they believe as a, as a company from a philosophical standpoint are good and, and are positive. And so I think, you know, last year was, was really interesting in the number of withdrawals because I actually think despite what it, what you might immediately jump to the conclusion of, it actually was an indication of there's being really effective dialogue and engagement around these issues. And I think the issues are moving forward without the need to go to a shareholder vote every time. So, you know, actually, I take that trend um, as, as positive. I think, you know, it's kind of been building for, for quite, quite a bit of time. The other thing that was really fascinating last year is there were not any ENS proposals that passed last year, <laughs> which was, it was the first time since, I think, 2015, um, that there were no ENS proposals that passed. And again, I think there has been this building of support, particularly around some of the climate resolutions, right? You know, there's been a targeting. Um, I think proponents have been much better about targeting companies. And I think the support for them has been increasing, which is really forcing the dialogue. So again, I wouldn't, I don't actually look at that number of no no majority supported shareholder proposals within the ENS bucket and say, gee, you know, that that's a that's a failure. I actually see that as really good, right? It actually means that a lot of the dialogue for those that might have passed has, has probably moved into engagement. There's been a little bit more proactive adoption. Fast forward um, to this year, we obviously don't have all of the um, all of the data. We're still in the middle of in the middle of proxy season. Um, but so far, I don't have a full accounting for the universe, but I know there, you know, there have been three proposals that have passed with majority support um, this year. One was a climate resolution, two were um, around human capital management, which, you know, both of those issues, I think, are two that many investors have been said, you know, they've been saying they're a priority for some time. I think um, those priorities were reaffirmed this year by many large investors. Climate, um, climate change, climate risk, how companies are thinking about it was named a priority in human capital management. I think this is one that's been on the, um, on the high priority list for investors for a number of years. And I think in this current state of the world, um, in the pandemic, I think the focus on human capital um, issues has really never been greater. You know, when you think about how this is impacting companies and their employees and how they treat employees, um, the investor focus on how companies um, are accounting for their employees um, it, 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 it is really growing. And I, I think you know, there's kind of been an emergence of the, of the ass and the human capital um, issue set for, for this year. So, you know, I'd say I'm not surprised to see that those were the three that, that passed um, this year. So it'll be interesting to see where all the rest of these um, come out. But I, I do think, you know, I don't know where the withdrawals um, will land, but I, I would not be surprised if we were in a similar spot as last year where there was just, there has been so much engagement and dialogue around these that many are being implemented without having to go to a vote. Thank you so much for shedding that light on the um, shareholder process and for really the silver lining with respect to the withdrawals um, and, and, you know, back to engagement, really. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so moving on to our final topic, which is contested and complex situations, which again, if you know one goes really well uh, with your guidance and advice, then unless it's an unanticipated risk, such as the global pandemic we're in now, um, we shouldn't get to that phase. But how do ENS issues intersect with crisis management, crisis prevention, but also resilience in managing the crisis? You know, I think it, I think it depends on what type of what type of crisis it is, right? You know, there's there's a lot of things that um, that might fall under what you would what you would consider um, what you would consider a, a crisis, you know. If you just take the the time that we are in now, not, I'm, I'm not sure I would call it necessarily a crisis for all companies, right? But a major global market event, um, and this is something that we're helping a lot of companies navigate. There's you know there's an element that's just traditional investor relations, right? How are you communicating around your financials? But there's a huge and growing piece around what you're doing around. Um, the environmental and, and social. And I'd, I'd say that, you know, the, the asks, again, kind of going back to the employees and, and how you're thinking about your, your human capital, that how we're working with companies right now is, you know, the decisions that you're making right now are, are likely going to be judged with 2020 hindsight in the future, right? Decisions that are happening now, um, you know, you're going to have the financial performance that, that you're going to, have and when you play this forward you think about things like activism vulnerability you think about you know potentially takeover type things what you don't want to do right is create a narrative that an activist could use against you on some of these um particularly the ask the the human capital um pieces so we're working with a lot of companies around just, you know, what are the decisions that you're making now? What are the long-term implications of them? How might this look um, in the future? What vulnerability could this create in the future? So that's just one example of, um, of, of a crisis. You know, I think if you want to, I'm not sure I would call activism necessarily a crisis, you know, it's, <laughs> there are a lot of companies that um, they deal with pressure from activists, but, you know, I think one of the things that's really notable is, um, there have been some uh, activist, traditional activist funds that have started um, more specific E and S funds. You know, take take Value Act for instance. You know, started started to spring funds. Um, it, it, you know, a, a, a discrete um, fund focused on that. But even even beyond that, you're seeing E and S issues come up um, within the activist toolkit more and more. You know, and I think that this is a reflection of um, activists recognizing that this is something that investors care about, right? If, and it is, if, if you think about how um, an activist would go after a company, they, you know, they certainly need to make sure that there is some value proposition. Um, but then in order to win, right, in, in any of these scenarios, you really need to build a case or why maybe a, a board or a management team isn't doing all of the things that they should be doing. Um, and they're increasingly pointing to E or S issues, which I think is, is, is really interesting. And I think, I think it's very much an indication of um, an appreciation by activists for just how much 
um, the broader investor bases care about these issues, that it is a tool that they can use to say, look, this is a board or management team that isn't doing X or Y and we think they should. That's really interesting You that activists are using ENS issues sort of as leverage and have themselves bought into the fact that investors care about these issues. Crystal, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and to discuss um, ENS issues and how companies and investors are engaging on them. Yeah, absolutely. It was a real pleasure, Amelia. Thank you. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today. 